Okay, we are going to go to uh, the book of Galatians today, and I apologize ahead of time because we're going to jump around quite a bit. Uh, those verses that Jerry read about the uh, those in old age shall become fat and so on, that's what Jack was telling me. <laughs> He didn't say that's me, but I just started laughing. He says, quit laughing. So I knew what he was talking about. Yeah, <clears throat> but we are, hopefully I'll get there. But he's talking, talking there about becoming fat in the Lord, spiritually growing and progressing in the things of Christ. Galatians is a um, <clears throat> interesting book. And um, as most other, all the other epistles, really, they're all written to us, believers, directed to our attention for how we should live. Now, the theme in Galatians is, as we've probably heard many times, freedom in Christ. And in conjunction with that, not being in bondage. In chapter 2, in verse 4, <clears throat> Paul said this occurred because of false brethren secretly, secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty or our freedom in Christ Jesus that they might bring us into bondage. Now, that's the goal of those who are against those who have freedom in Christ and know how to live it and know how to experience it. And that ought to be true of every one of us, that we know how to live freely in Christ. Those who live according to the flesh and according to the ways of the world seek nothing but to put us back in bondage and make slaves of us. Slaves to our own flesh and slaves to the worldly things. And so Paul's desire here is to make clear that the Galatian churches had someone come in and begin teaching them that they had to go back under the law and be circumcised. Now that was just one item. One thing. To put them back in bondage. You know, in, in, in chapter 5, and verse 1, Paul says there, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And then he also says down in verse 13, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. That is, your newfound freedom in Christ. But through love, serve one another. So you might be wondering, since we are free, what is this liberty? What is this new freedom that the person who receives Christ has. What does it consist of and what does it mean for us? 
And why is Paul so jealously guarding that freedom that we have in the Lord Jesus? Well, one of the things you'll notice in the book of Galatians is that this word liberty or freedom is contrasted throughout with bondage. Or as, that is, as it's translated in the New King James. It's a word that comes from the word that means for a slave. And it has an interesting preposition in front of it. In every instance, kata. It adds intensity. It adds fullness to this idea of slavery. In other words, they want to put you in total subjection, total bondage to what they teach as opposed to the freedom that you have in Christ. In chapter 2 and verse 4, we read that verse uh, that they want to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ and bring us into bondage. This is one of the reasons why we've, in our, especially in men's Bible study, we've talked about this several times, about uh, always being alert, or as the King James says, it's circumspect as to those who enter our fellowship and begin to teach some other doctrine, some other gospel. And that's what Paul was referring to here with the Galatians. He says they're teaching a different gospel. In chapter 1 and verse 6, he says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Now the King James says to another gospel, but it's, a, it's not the same word in, in, in verse 7, which says another. It's a different word. And he says to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. So he's talking about believers who want to come in and pervert the gospel. And they will do it. In chapter 4 and verse 3, he says, Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage. Complete, total, utter bondage. Slavery under the elements of the world. Now that's important for us to recognize that those who do not know Christ are under a whole different system than those who are in Christ. He says down in verse 9, the same chapter, he says, But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? We find out later on, you know, Paul's contrasting the spirit with the flesh, that we should understand that it's our own flesh that has a natural inclination, a natural desire to want to go back and live according to the way the world lives and not according to God's Spirit. And then down in verse 24, he says, and he's been teaching on this allegory between uh, the, the free woman and the bondwoman, Sarah and Hagar. And he says, which things are symbolic or an allegory? For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar, 
For this Hagar, verse 25, is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. Of course, Paul was talking about the Jerusalem of his present day. They were still under the law at this point in time. They were still in bondage. It's not like the new Jerusalem, which is free. Nor is it like Sarah, who was symbolic of the free woman, as opposed to Hagar, who was symbolic of the one in bondage. In all of these verses, every one of them, the word slave is more than just common slave, but a slave who is in total, complete subjection and no hope of escape, no deliverance without Christ. Now, when he says children of the bondwoman, it's not doulos or doulao, it's paidiske. But it's a, it's a common word that means a slave, a female slave. And he says there that we're children of the bondwoman, the slave woman, not, but of the free. And so following that then, in chapter 5 and verse 1, he says, Therefore then stand fast in the liberty, or the freedom, by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage, a yoke of slavery. So the entire book of Galatians then is simply to remind us about our calling. Our calling to live free under God's Spirit and let God's Spirit direct us. Our calling is to freedom in Christ. And we're not to allow any brother or sister to put us back under slavery by saying, well, if you're going to be a good Christian, if you're going to be accepted by God, then you need to be doing this or this or this. Or a church that will not accept you unless you are doing this or this or any other side. It doesn't matter what it is. We are subjected to the law of Christ. Or it to be in subjection. But not only does he use the contrast between freedom or liberty and slavery, but there are other expressions in the gospel or in this epistle which speak of the same thing. For instance, back there in chapter 1, verse 6. When he said, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you into the grace of Christ. That's an important thing. You have been called into the grace of Christ. You've been called to a different gospel. To, uh, excuse me, not, uh, not to a different gospel, but to the grace of Christ. Not to the one that the so-called Judaizers were trying to teach the Galatian believers to follow. Then I want us to see also that in chapter 5 and verse 6, 
When he said in verse 1, stand fast therefore in the liberty or the freedom by which Christ has made us free, he tells us how to do it. How is this to be accomplished? How is it that we can live in such freedom? I was listening to a radio program, which I don't hardly ever turn the radio on anymore, but I did this day, and it happened to be a kid's program, and it happened to be a, a little story uh, about a mom and a dad who had read this book, and they said, well, the ideal way to raise your children is just to take away all the rules. Let them experience the consequences. Let them experience the failure. Well, of course, the kid was really, he was elated at such an idea. He was able to go out and do whatever he wanted to do. Now, I didn't get to listen to the end of the program, but the idea was, you know, he paid the price for it. And the ultimate end of the story, and the moral of the story, or the lesson was, uh, that kind of freedom does not gain you any profit with Christ. Letting the flesh have its way has no profit to it with the Lord Jesus. And so he says there then, here's how you do it. In verse 5, he says of Galatians 5, he says, For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. The foundation of freedom living in Christ is love. And we're going to see this a little more. Uh, down in verse 13, though, he reminds us, don't use this liberty as an occasion for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So this freedom that you have in Christ is designed so that we might follow the dictates of God's Spirit and live in accordance with His Spirit. He tells us also in verse 14, he says, All the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, he says one word. We understand that that one word was the message what did he intend to teach by that message? That loving your neighbor had precedent over all the other laws that God laid down in his commandments for Israel to follow. Oh yeah, they were to follow specifically and exactly specific things that they were do when they encountered various situations and offerings to bring and so on. But love was to govern all of it. And so then he says, uh, that, that um, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, <clears throat> this freedom that you have, is highly abused in today's age. All you have to do is turn on your TV, turn on your radio, get in on the internet, and to listen to some preachers, and you'll find how that freedom has been highly abused. You know, it's an amazing thing to me that when you observe 
the most popular preachers in America today, and when you say that, I say also the big money makers, they understand a principle that Paul is referring to here that we sometimes forget about. And I'll, I'll try to summarize it by just simply saying that many of them, probably most of them, have a wonderful message. They know, and they know what to teach from the Bible, things about prophecy. You may not agree with all of them, but I mean, they're, they're teachers. They teach about prophecy. They teach about the atonement. They teach about how a person comes to know Christ, how they're saved, and so on. And we have no problems with those things. There is a strong appeal from our flesh and our mind to gravitate towards such things. And we, we often listen to them and we gain benefit from them. So where do they go wrong? It's because they understand that as soon as they make an appeal for you to change your life, then things go haywire. It would remind one of what happened in a sermon that Stephen preached in Acts chapter 7. You remember how he had a Jewish audience that was listening to him. He had gotten a bad reputation for the things he was teaching because they said he was trying to do away with the law and, and was teaching that Jesus was going to come and destroy uh, the temple and their customs that they had would be taken away and all these sorts of things. They didn't like that. And so Peter began, or Paul, Peter, Paul, Stephen, Stephen begins to preach to them and he recounts the whole history of Israel, point after point, even talking about the bad things, the negative things that Israel did. Amen. Even called his Jewish listeners stiff-necked and stubborn. And they didn't even respond to that. But as soon as he presented Christ to them, and now he was going to set them free from the bondage of their sins and the law, they got enraged. And they even killed Stephen for it. And so what I'm saying is, is that a lot of preachers understand exactly where to stop when they're preaching. They know what will turn you off. They know what will keep you from sending your check in. Well, that didn't seem to bother Paul one bit. Paul was a teacher of the truth. And what I'm trying to say here is that, yes, Paul was a teacher. He taught. He taught doctrine. He taught about prophecy. He taught about the things that all the others teach about. But when Paul was teaching, he taught with a practical end in mind. And that was a changed life. A life that was given over to Christ. A life that was now to be sanctified, set apart unto the Lord. And no longer live according to the desires of this present world. You know, he says back there in verse 1, or, or chapter 1 rather, in verse 4, that he gave himself for us 
for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age. Now it's an interesting way to describe the present age in which we live. It's evil or it's harmful. It's bad. It has nothing good in it. It doesn't produce anything in the way of righteousness in order for you and I to be accepted or approved of God. And he also says this is according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever, that is unto the ages of the ages. Well, there's another interesting statement um, that Paul has reference to. Uh, Let me just summarize that, or let me just say, how do I want to put this? Let me just say it this way. That the present popular Christianity that we are accustomed to seeing and hearing about is one that leaves the heart untouched. I think that's the best way I can describe it. I know you've heard Ken Stay, say up here time and time again. He even said it this morning. My heart was just moved about singing some songs that praise God. You know, it's the heart and our desire to live for God that should move us. You know, when when he comes to over to and let's turn over to chapter five because this is where Paul, more or less, you want to say, ends his message. It's how, how we respond. How are we to live this life of love that he talks about? Well, let's read chapter 5 and begin with verse 14, where he says, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Now, probably many of you have experienced things like that in churches that you've been involved with where there was that kind of thing going on, biting and devouring. When we were home in Indiana, we were at the, the Amish store, Rentown, and as I was going in, this guy I knew was, and his wife were coming out. So we stopped and talked for a while. They used to go to the church that Janet and I came from and where we were married. I said they used to go. The reason he left, he said, because all they did was fight and bicker constantly. Well, we know where he, I knew where he was coming from. Thank God it's not true here. I've never been in a place like this. Never been involved with a church body of believers like this one. I don't always want to, by the way. So that if you're living by the Spirit, if you're walking in love, then you won't have this biting and devouring, Paul says. He says, beware lest you be consumed by one another. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The flesh lusts against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another. 
Now, he could just as easily have said, to those of you who are in Christ, and you're walking in Him, then your life is in direct conflict with the lives of those who are under the elements of the world and living accordingly. Whether that person is a saved person or whether they're not. Believers, he says, can walk according to the elements of this cosmos, this present age. But he reminds us that we've been called out of that. As a matter of fact, I think I have these verses listed over here. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. Let's just look at a couple verses. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13. And now let me pull that out of here. Let's see here. Yeah. Okay. Y'all have your little preposition sheet? You got the circle on one side, you got the cheese on the other. Okay. Y'all carry that around with you? I take mine everywhere I go. I've used it before, of course. Colossians 1.13. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us or translated us into the kingdom of the Son of His love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Notice what he says. He has conveyed us or translated us into the kingdom of the son of his love. Look at 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Should be just a couple pages over in your Bible. And look at verse 12. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 12. Now, we're breaking into a sentence here, so you understand that. If you want to get the context, you can go back and begin at verse 9 uh, or 10 and read the whole thing. But he says that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That's his calling on us. And then... If you look at um, 1 Corinthians 1.9. 1 In 1 Corinthians 1.9, he says, God is faithful by whom you were called. You see the calling there, the called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. One of the things I would like for you to see is the little word, the preposition, into. In all three of those verses that we just read, we saw where we were called into something. If you look at your little mouse and your preposition seat, and you look right here at the little Greek word, eis, E-I-S, for those of you on the internet, E-I-S, ice, it means into. And if you look on the circle on the other side, you'll see the arrow for ice goes into this circle. So what's the point? The point is simply that 
when Paul is teaching here, he's telling the Thessalonians, he's telling the Colossians, he's telling the church at Corinth, all the same thing, that we have been translated into a different realm. We are not under the elements of the cosmos, the world, this present age, any longer. So if you're not, then change the way you walk. Live a different life. One that is in accordance with that which you've been called into. The more common familiar word that you and I might understand is sanctified. Live the set-apart life. The sanctified life. One that is set apart from the ways and the elements of the world. Now, when you come back to chapter 5 of Galatians, and he says in verse 18, he says, if you are led by the Spirit, then you're not under the law. You're not in bondage to those things. You're free. But if you're going to be in bondage, here are the kinds of things that, that you're doing if you're in bondage. So just pay attention to those. He says the works of the flesh. Now, if you're doing the works of the flesh, then you're a slave. You're in bondage to these things. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions and jealousies, outbursts of wrath or anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. There are more that could be added to that list. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice or do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now isn't that an amazing thought? We have been translated into the kingdom of the Son of His love. We have been placed in the kingdom of His glory. We have been placed into the fellowship of His Son. And yet, if we do not walk according to the dictates of that fellowship and that kingdom, then He says you will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you're walking over here according to the dictates and elements of the world, there's no inheritance to await us. But the contrast of all of that is the fruit of the Spirit, which is love and joy and peace and long-suffering and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law for these things. You're free to practice these things. And so he says then in verse 24, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now that's not a dogmatic statement. He's not saying there, if you belong to Christ, you've automatically done this. He's simply saying that if you are of Christ, if you are doing these things, he says, then you are the, one, you are the ones who have crucified the flesh. That is, if you are practicing the things of verse 20, verses 22 and 23, then you have crucified the flesh. And so if we live in the Spirit, he says, let us also walk in 
the Spirit. Now that is a constant message to me. Change, Alan. Change. Don't become numb to the things of Christ and accepting of the things of the world just because we live in it. If you do not wake up in the morning with a constant battle before you concerning these things, then you need to go back and examine where you are and see just where am I in my walk with Christ? He tells them then in verse 26, don't become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Something interesting there. In verse 26, he talks about envying one another. Did you go back up there and notice the first word in verse 21 is envy? It's one of those works of the flesh. And then did you notice that in chapter 6 and verse 1, if a man is caught up, overtaken in a sin, a trespass, we're to seek that, to restore that one in a spirit of gentleness. Did you notice that's the first word in verse 23? of those who walk according to the Spirit and are bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Consequently, he tells us, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. I guess the thing that really grabs me is I realize I cannot do this all by myself. That I need you. I need to know about your love. I need to watch your example so that I can learn from it. I hope that you can see my example so that you can learn from me. And thereby we minister and serve one another. There is no other way. He hits that notion of conceitedness again in verse three, if you think you're something, he says, when you're really nothing, you deceive yourself. And so, consequently, as I just mentioned, verse 4, let each examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in someone else. You know, that's a great thing to be able to watch someone else who's living for the Lord and just give praise and, and words of, admin, uh, words of uh, laud and exhortation to someone that we see who's really committed in following Christ. But it's another thing then to look back at ourselves and say, well, am I doing the same thing they are? Am I living the same way? You and I ought to serve as examples to each other so that we all can be successful, so that we can all gain Christ's approval. Jerry mentioned that at the end of his... Uh, was it scripture reading? And by the way, it was in the Psalms too that we were singing. Now 
I know you're probably looking at verse 5 because there it says, For each shall bear his own burden. Or the King James, New King James says his own load. The word load there is a different word than the word bear. So, when he says in verse 2, bear one another's burdens, we need to know that there are some things that we can share with others. And they can help us along the way and bear the burdens that we carry. In verse 5, there are some that can't be shared. And Paul calls this a load. Now, this load here, this word load, is just like you and I would think about it. I'm carrying a load on my back. It's translated elsewhere. I think it's in, yeah, in Acts where he talks about it's translated cargo. We're talking physical load. Bearing a load of something, whatever it might be for you in life. And God expects you to carry that load for yourself. But there are other burdens that can be shared. And so we're skipping down to verse 8 of chapter 6. He says, He who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Now, again, if we look at those words everlasting life, we understand them from the Greek text to say eonios life. Life for the age. Or age lasting or age abiding life. What does that mean? Well, if you go right back up to um, chapter, uh, chapter 5, when he says you will not inherit the kingdom of God, you must realize that kingdom of God there and age-lasting life are the same things. You won't inherit it. You won't become a possessor of it. And so Paul's admonition then is, let's don't grow weary while doing good. That's why I like that song that Mark sang. This world is a storm. And the hymn writer, the songwriter of that song said, keep me safe till the storm passes by. That's what Paul was saying right there in, in verse 9. Let's don't grow weary. Stay with it. I'm afraid there might be some people going through this storm in Florida that are pretty weary, especially as they see Jose coming along right behind. And that would be a tough thing. But when it comes to the spiritual application of what God has called us to, what our calling is, we are to be diligent and faithful and not weary because he says, in due season we shall reap. What are we going to reap? Everlasting life. Age-lasting life. If we do not lose, there's that word, heart. If we don't grow faint. If we stay strong. 
I'm just saying, I stay strong because of people like you. Because I look at you and I say, well, I see them doing this and I see them doing that and da 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 and that keeps me going. Keeps me from wanting to quit and give up. We'll finish up with verse 17. Paul, in verse 17, says, From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear, and that's the same word we had bear back here in verse 5 and also in verse 2, chapter 6. He says, I bear in my body the marks, the stigma of the Lord Jesus. Now Paul bore some physical marks. And that may that could be true of you and I someday. If it hasn't already happened. But there's also some spiritual marks that we can carry. Persecutions Mockery. Just because we don't live the way the rest of the church world lives. We've been called to something entirely different. And I'm thankful that I have someone like you by my side to keep me going. You know, go over in Matthew chapter 11, verse 30 where Jesus says my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Same word. We may become weary and tired, but he says the burden is light. When you walk with him in his yoke and he's beside you, it becomes light. Let's pray. Father, as we consider the things that you've taught us and told us and that Paul has emphasized to us here in this letter about our freedom in Christ, about the necessity of letting go and letting you have your way in us. I pray that our hearts will be filled with that passion, that desire for godly living for holy living, for separated living, for living that will stand the test at the judgment seat of Christ and will have your approval. And so that even though we have been placed in another realm, we have been translated into the kingdom of your love, that we will then have that privilege to experience that kingdom that material kingdom that will be upon this earth when Christ comes. Let us be faithful, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.